0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast
1: One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin.
2: Today, you're going to meet a man whose life story is so amazing that Hollywood made a movie about him. He was a high school football player who, at the age of 16, caught the attention of the NFL until he was accused of a crime he did not commit. He lost his scholarship, went to jail for 10 years, and was prevented from playing pro football. When he got out of jail, he fought to prove his innocence by taking on the system of justice that failed him. He was determined to get his life and his dignity back and pursue his dream of playing in the NFL. This is one incredible life story. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Brian Banks. Where are you from?
0: I am born and raised in the city of Long Beach in California. How old are you? Today, I am 34, as of July 24th. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Happy
1: belated birthday. Yeah, thank you so much. So that makes
0: it. you a
2: cancer, right?
0: I'm a Leo. A Leo. Oh. Yeah, I'm right on the, right right on on the cusp. cusp.
2: I used to be married to a Leo, and if you give a Leo the wrong birthday present, you may as well have not given them a birthday present at all.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs>
0: I, you know, I I, really, I never ask for gifts. I don't really expect anything, so I don't know, but I guess you could get the wrong gift, <laughs> Not be too happy about it. So
1: so you're a native Californian.
0: I am, One of a few. You
1: grew up in Long Beach. What was it like? What was your young life like?
0: Um, You know what? I grew up in a, a, for a long period of time, a single-parent household. My mom stepped up to the plate, raised me, my younger brother, my older sister, um and we jumped around from you know you know fairly good neighborhoods to bad neighborhoods to, uh from from schools in decent neighborhoods to schools in bad neighborhoods you know Long Beach is kind of a an accumulation of both uh but we um we grew up playing sports we grew up in uh in in uh in the time where you know kids still hung out on the street and rode bikes and skateboarded and you know had groups of friends and uh, I mean, it was good times growing up. We enjoyed we enjoyed our childhood.
1: So you had a happy life. We had a really happy
0: life. You know, my mom struggled as a single mother to keep everything afloat. As kids, we never knew. You know, when birthdays or Christmases came around, it was as if, you know, we, we got to enjoy it like any other kids. She was, uh, you know, our she was our rock, our strength that just kept it going.
1: So you're a middle child, but you're the oldest of the two boys.
0: Yes, middle child, but I am the older brother.
1: So did you, I know that you have a unbelievable sports background. Mm-hmm. So when did that evidence itself, when did it start yeah. showing up?
0: So the first sport that I ever played was I ran track. Uh, my brother, and my sister, we all ran track and then started playing basketball, was really good at that had some pretty important growth spurts in those earlier periods of life. So, so you
2: were a bigger eleven year old, yeah, sort of fifth grade, you were yeah, a tall kid?
0: Yeah, everybody uh-huh. thought that for sure I was gonna be six foot ten, uh-huh. you know, six <laughs> foot nine and so they were always putting me at the uh the center position in basketball, you know, which is for the bigger bigger player and you know i always grew up as the tallest kid in class and so, so everybody had this idea that i was gonna be this really giant kid mm-hmm. today i'm six four i'm the size of a point guard and mm-hmm. i'm not that i'm not mm-hmm. that good at basketball because i was constantly playing you know the center position uh um, yeah, you don't
2: have a body for basketball you're, no you're no when i was younger guy. yeah
0: i was i was tall lean with really long mm-hmm. arms so it, it made sense back in you know high school days but surely after high school i stopped growing Tall and starts you know mm-hmm. expanding
2: did you have other interests as a kid that, that were just things that were yours and yours alone that you were
0: yeah what, I, what? I wanted to be in the air force for a long time when i was young
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, i was inspired by a really great movie called independence day with will smith
1: oh yeah <laughs> i watched
0: that film and i was sold i was like you know what i'm going to the i'm joining the service i'm being in the air force but I've, I've i've always been a fan of sports and um I've always been a fan of music. I remember uh, I was maybe 5th or 6th grade uh, when I introduced uh 94.7 the Wave to my mom. She didn't even know about the station. I'm like, "Mom, this music is great. You got to hear
1: it." I love that station. Smooth
0: jazz, easy listening, uh, you know, it was it was really good music and and so yeah, I've always been a fan of just a, a wide variety of music uh-huh, across uh-huh. the board.
2: That connects you to people too because mm-hmm. if you share that love like I'm a big jazz fan myself yeah, too yeah. I had a when I was in college I was a disc jockey and I was forced to do jazz so mm-hmm. I would, had to learn it mm-hmm. and it's connected me to so many different diverse different ages different mm-hmm. nationalities it's incredible yeah, Do you still this. do you still go see a lot of music
0: Uh not as much recently uh but I am a big fan of live music uh I think the my most favorite and memorable concert was being able to watch Day live oh, at the Staples Center.
2: That uh, makes sense. That, was, that makes yeah, a lot of sense. That was yeah. what, a what a show. Yeah, What uh, a show. Yeah, She's unbelievable. Yeah, she doesn't
0: age. No, she, she amazing. doesn't. It's crazy. Yeah,
2: would like the same thing to happen to all of us, but I don't <laughs> no, think I know. And, right? <laughs> and she reminds me of Tony Bennett in the sense that she picks material that's exactly right for her. Oh,
0: man, yeah. I love her music because I love the way she allows the music to breathe yeah. she's not constantly just bringing you lyrics and all over the track she just kind of she'll say a couple of things and just let it breathe and it's just yeah. like you're just in this you know <laughs> space like I'm enjoying it
2: yeah you know? yeah that's awesome yeah. i love that did mm-hmm. you get your height from your dad
0: no, I got my height from my mom's side of the family. My my mom's not tall, but my I have uncles that are six six and six four and six five. So the height comes from that side. My dad's only about five nine.
1: What's your What about your brother?
0: My brother's tall. He's six one.
1: Does he play sports?
0: He was uh, he played basketball for a long long time. He was actually one of the best basketball players that I've ever had a chance to see at my younger age. Um, and this whole ordeal, this traumatic experience. Uh kind of ended that for him too. Mentally he just was not there to to continue to pursue mm-hmm. you know basketball.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the, the, the sort of collateral impact of a mm-hmm. of thing that happened. Can you can we go do you wanna Yeah,
1: we can yeah. I would like to just, just before we go to that, I wanna go back a little bit more to your home life. Yeah. So you had a lovely time growing up. Your mom was there, you had a brother and your sister, everybody got along. And school was important for you mm-hmm. and you were focused on Finishing school and going in to be a professional athlete. Right, yeah. And um, so uh, sometime along that line, you were um, 17 when this first happened. 16. 16. Yeah. And um, okay, so let's start it So yeah. I just want to go back and make sure we put that on the tape because you, you were on path to having a successful sports career. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now age 16 – All boys at age 16, the mother of four boys I am. She's the mother of two boys. So we have a lot of understanding about boys Mm -hmm. and testosterone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're so cute that I'm sure you were super cute when you were 16. So here you are, 16 years old. You're an athlete. You're very popular. And let's start beginning the story of the the, uh, path.
0: So uh, at this time in my life, I was 16 years old. This was 2002. Um, I was becoming very well known uh, for playing football. I was ranked, I finished my junior year in high school, ranked 11th in the nation as a linebacker. I was being recruited by pretty much every Division one school you could think of. And I had every intention and purpose to go to USC. I had been offered a um, a, uh, a scholarship to come play there. It was a verbal scholarship. It was, you know, the way uh, recruitment works within high school, you cannot officially offer scholarships until a certain period of time but you can verbally accept a scholarship and say this is where I plan to commit to so that was where I was with USC and um, you know USC was a dream school for me it was a school that I'd always grew up wanting to go to watching Pete Carroll and what he did for that program and watching the talent come out of that school and go on to play in the NFL it just made sense that that was where I wanted to be So I finished my junior year excited and hyped up to go to our senior year, one more year to go, which for me at that time was the biggest sports year of of my life. And um, summer, uh, going into my senior year, uh, I was in summer school. And during summer school, there was uh, a film crew that was supposed to show up on campus that was going to do a documentary about our school playing against the, uh, the number two school in the nation, Concord de la Salle, which is in Northern California, we were going to be playing the second national high school championship football game um, that coming Mm -hmm. season. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to do a documentary about that and then highlight within that documentary uh, the top players on the team. So they were going to come follow me around campus and, you know, watch me throughout the day. And um, they were late. They hadn't showed up to the campus yet. And I wanted to know where they were. So I remember stepping out of the classroom and borrowing a cell phone from a friend. And I asked the teacher, could I step out to make a call? And the teacher said, well, if you're going to step out, I want you to take these papers to the front office and deliver them for me. Uh, like, side note, it's not the teacher's fault, but just the idea that I was just going to step outside of the classroom to use the phone. But instead, he sent me across the yeah. Across the campus to deliver papers, yeah. which kind of opened the door for other things.
1: Serendipity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It would have been a quick outside, jump back in. Right. You know, instead I'm, I'm on the other side of the campus. So as I'm returning from delivering these papers, I see a girl that I've known since middle school. She was headed in the opposite direction that I was going in. And we, uh, we uh, embracing a hug, small talk. I asked where she was going. She said she was on her way to use the restroom. And uh, she said she was headed to a, a building that was fairly close to where we were standing, but it was also a building that was restricted and, and only certain people, certain students were allowed to be in it. It's also a building that's very known on our campus, or it was at that time, it was known as a, a make spot, or there was a, an area within that building that was a secluded area that if you wanted to take your significant other to um, to a place to be alone, you can go to that place. Mm -hmm. So I walk with her over to this restroom, buying myself some time to try to contact this reporter who was not picking up his phone. And she went in to use a restroom. And once she made her way out, we small talked at the, you know, the bottom of this, uh, this, this uh, 700 building. And this small talk led us to flirting with each other. And this flirting led us to discussing, making our way over to that make house spot. And we both agreed. And there's a process. There's a you know way to get there. You have to take an elevator up to a second floor. You have to basically be ninja silent once you come out of this elevator and walk across a hallway that's lined with classrooms. Those classes are in session. Those doors are open. There's teachers and students. And so if you're not, if you get caught in this building, it's an automatic suspension if you're not supposed to be in there. So here we are. We're, you know, very quiet, making our way through. We successfully get past all these classrooms unseen. We go down the two flight of stairs at the back end of this, this building. And at the bottom, there's this, this landing where, you know, it's kind of covered at the top by the staircase, case. And then the double doors that lead out to the exit are locked from the, the outside. So you can only open them from the end. So there's just like little nook that people go to. And, um, we went there and we, we touched, we kissed, we made out. And I eventually uh stopped this, uh, this make out session. And made my way back to class suddenly. To this day, I don't know why she made up the accusation, but that could have been partially one of the reasons of the way things ended, the way I kind of abruptly just stopped and said I got to get back to class. That's and,
1: the way girls are. Well, you know,
0: you, yeah, I I wouldn't know. Bitchy. You,
1: know. Yeah, you can't know another person's you mind. You never can know, yeah. but you can't.
0: So, yeah. she you sound I,
1: like a normal 16-year-old boy, and, you know, that's what 16-year-old boys do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And twenty year old boys and so yeah. forth. But and yeah, so no, that's nothing out of out of, you know, nothing weird. Yeah. Normal. So you I walk make, back, you're not yeah. you don't think twice about it. I make
0: it. my way back to class. And I I sit back down, I finish the rest of the day. Uh I think that was my last class that I had before school was over. And then there was a gap between the end of school and football practice where players would either go to a friend's house down the street to play video games on the tv or a bunch of us would go over to a burger place to like get food and just kind of wait out the time Mm -hmm. so i went got food made my way back to campus and as we sat around on campus about an hour or so later we started to notice that there was a police presence on our campus and it began to multiply and multiply and multiply and we're like wow you know usually we see police there's there's always something going on on our campus you know we were kind of in a Long Beach Poly is an amazing school that happens to be smack dab in the middle of a not so good neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, so once we saw so many police, we really thought something was going on. Me being clueless as to why they were there, I got up out of my seat. I walk over to one of the officers. I said, hey, what's going on? And I don't think he realized that they were looking for me. He makes like this small joke. Oh, I didn't finish school or something like that. And he kind of dismissed me. So I go back and I sit down with my friends and I said, well, he didn't tell me anything. And maybe about five minutes later, a friend of ours who da- whose dad is always on campus for our practices, he comes on to campus. He pulls me to the side, and he says, I, I overheard a police officer saying that they're looking for a kid by last name of Banks. Oh, God. And I couldn't play. I just dismissed it. Like, okay, and? And he's like, well, you know, if you didn't do anything, you may want to check with your brother to make sure he didn't get into any trouble. So I walk over to check with my brother. He's at basketball practice. And, and he said, I didn't do anything. And so I said, okay, it must be some other kid named Banks. Long Beach Poly is a school of over 4,000 students. So I said, okay, whatever. You know, I dismiss it. I go back and sit down. And within minutes of me sitting down, um, and I remember I had a hoodie. I had a sweatshirt on with a hoodie. I had the hoodie over my head, so my face was kind of blocked from the hoodie. And from the left side of my face, I could see this young lady, her mother, her sister, and a few different police officers exiting the campus. They literally walked right by me. And they didn't see me, but I but i think she saw me. And she, we made eye contact for a small second. And then they made a left and turned off into the, the parking lot. And once I saw that, that was the first time that, like, my heart literally began to jump out of my body. And I didn't even know why she was in, why, with the police. She was known in our campus for being a bully. She had lots of fights and suspensions, yelling and arguing with the teachers and so forth. So she had kind of a reputation of getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. So I figured she'd done something on campus. They saw me walking around with her and maybe thought that I had something to do with it too. Now they're looking for me. And so I'm freaking out. My heart's jumping out of my body. As they make their left, I get up, I turn right. I, you know, haul ass down this parking lot and jump across the street over to go to my friend's house. When I get to my friend's house. I jump on the phone, call my mom. I think the police are looking for me. She's like, for what? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, if they're really looking for you, they'll come to the house and get you. So come home. So I skip practice. I hop on a bus. I make my way home. When I get home, she asks me again, what happened? I was like, nothing happened. She's like, did you do anything out of the ordinary today that would make the police want to come and, and talk to you? I was like, no, I didn't do anything. Mind you, I'm not telling her. Well, I made out with this girl in a uh-huh. corner of a you know building. Well, you didn't
1: think twice about it. No,
0: I didn't think twice about it. So I say in my head, I'm thinking nothing that would warrant the police. I didn't do anything.
2: Yeah.
0: And she said, "Well, then you are, you're 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 over exaggerating. Stop panicking. Don't worry about it. Just let it go." And so I I took a shower. After I got out, I laid in my bed. I fell asleep, and I was awakened by this uh, this pressure being pushed into the middle of my back as I was laying on my stomach. And this pressure was just, I mean, it was a lot of pressure. And I tried to jump and then I was told, I heard his voice say, don't move, you know, stay still, don't move. And uh, these orders are being barked to put my hands behind my back and I'm being handcuffed and yanked off the bed. There's other police officers in the room with their guns out, not pointed at me, but out and pointing towards the floor. And, you know, it, it's uh, just all a rush at once. And they're barking at, like, find something to wear. and wear the clothes you had today? And this and this and that. And you're dragging me out of my room and my mom's on her knees and she's screaming she's crying she's just hysterical and they put me in a car and moments later we take off and you know I went through a whole uh I went to a I went to a hospital for a DNA test re- test kit and at,
1: that you part. know oh my god it's
0: just as uh you know as as embarrassing and as um uncomfortable and humiliating as it is for a victim, uh, I can't imagine it, it, you know, for someone who didn't commit the crime, who is being investigated for it to be probed, to be swabbed, to have your pubic hairs yanked off of you, to have pictures taken of you in different ways and in different things that you've never allowed people to see before, to be asked questions about your sexual life. And it was so much at the age of 16. I was completely just like thrown you know, for a loop. I couldn't imagine. I just couldn't believe I was laying on the house with a hospital bed and this you know, woman was now like just picking and pulling at mm, Uh um, Terrible. So, once that was done, this detective sits me down and says, He just gave me this heartfelt speech about just telling him the truth. As long as I tell him what happened, everything would be okay. And I was naive at that time of thinking that if I just tell him the truth, I'd be fine. So, I told him everything. I told him just the way I'm talking to you now. Mm-hmm. But that was enough for them to say he admitted to being in that stairwell with this girl. And so, therefore, that's enough for us to charge him with these, you know, with these uh, with these allegations Uh, versus not talking at all and waiting for, you know, representation and allowing them to deal with it. I trusted this man and told him the truth. So uh, to make a long story, a long, long story short. Um, I was placed in a juvenile hall where I began to fight this case. I was given a bail of over $1 million, so it was impossible for us to post bond. What? Yeah, yep. yeah. And and I had, was denied being released from my own recognizance, which when you think about it, it's crazy. I was a kid from an inner city school. We had no money. We have no family in different countries. You're not a threat. You know, I'm not a threat. I want to play football. I want to be with my team. So you know I'm not going anywhere because football mm-hmm. is everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But no, they, they didn't let me go. So I... Missed the beginning of that school year. I missed the football season. I missed that big game. And I'm fighting this case. And they they said that this situation was so serious that I was to be tried as an adult. So I went from juvenile court to adult court. I went from facing camp time to 41 years to life in prison.
1: What I didn't understand or don't understand is – when they took the rape kit and they did all of these horrible things to you, there was you didn't have sex with her. Yeah, there
0: so was no So how could DNA. this
2: have possibly yeah, the been? Yeah. There was
0: no evidence. It was just her word and her word. She had about five or six different stories before we had even gotten into the courtroom. Um, and it was just her word alone that and, and me saying that we were together in this spot, mm-hmm. that that was enough for them to say, let a judge figure it out. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, court date after court date after court date, month after month after month, it had now gone into nine months of me being behind bars. I was now 17 in adult court facing life in prison. And I was at this point now where I was selecting a jury to go to trial. Uh, And I had been offered deals prior to this situation. They had offered me 25 years in prison, 19 years in prison, eight years in prison. I'm saying no to everything. And on this day of jury selection, my lawyer comes into this interview room, smiling her face, saying that she just came up with this amazing deal with the DA's office. And uh, I don't want to spoil the film for those who will go go and see it, but I am forced into taking a plea bargain. And uh, that plea uh, gave me six years uh, in prison. And I was to serve 85% of that time. And... um, I remember going into that holding cell afterwards uh, and just trying to add up how much time I had left to serve. And I remember just shaking uncontrollably and just couldn't believe that I had four years and two more months to serve. I had already been in there for a year, as long as a year of my life. And, you know, all the hope and dreams and, and, and everything just disappeared in that instant. And I began serving a prison sentence and I began serving that sentence very angry. Every negative emotion you can think of, I had it. I, I began, you know, participating in jailhouse activities and fights and riots and in and out of the hole and solitary confinement and hunger strikes. And I mean, you, you have no point. No, no. You, you really have no choice. Once you're in there, you become a part of the system.
2: And
1: I know that in the book, and I don't think this will ruin it for people to see it, but your mom and you would had a pact that you were not going to make a decision without her input.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, every Let's time, every time that a deal was offered, you know, and I was in my head, it was always a no. But I would also, I would also speak with my mom. I would talk with her, and she would always ask me the same question: "Did you do it?" And I'd say no. And she said, "Okay, we're going to fight this." And so we would reject every deal. On this, I, this time that I was offered this deal, my lawyer. Denied me the right to be able to talk to my mom. She said that I was a, I was an adult in adult court, and so therefore I had to make this adult decision on my own. Was that true? That was not true. Could so have. So she was trying
1: to be expedient.
0: Expedient. She could have easily went in there and said, Judge, we need a day. We need a week. Let this let this simmer. Let Brian and his mother talk about this. Let him go back to his cell and sleep on it for a few days. She said, I had ten minutes.
2: So she needed to clear her case.
0: She needs a clear case.
2: Can I ask a question going backwards a little bit? When you were first taken into custody and, um, you know, the wheels of the law started to move, mm-hmm. did anybody approach the girl and her family?
0: No. You know, we were advised that we should have no friends, no family, anybody contact her. And anybody who did um, – her mom was using that as a way to say that she was being threatened. Oh, that people were coming after them, trying to make it more of, uh, t- to make it seem like I am in fact like a threat, like this monster that's even behind bars. Mm-hmm. I'm still coming after mm-hmm. them, and so you know any idea of trying to to have a, a, a you know a human a human to human talk it just was not going to happen.
1: Yeah. So you made the decision to accept that plea deal, which was a horrible decision on every level, that you were mm-hmm. put in that position, that you had to make that decision, that you weren't allowed to talk to your mom, yeah. you relied to, yeah. you were in a situation that was of none of you were doing, mm-hmm. and you had no way of, of getting any kind of resolution that was at least fair to you, yeah. which was – I mean obviously you didn't do it. So yeah. there you are. You're a 17-year-old guy going, what the, what the frig here is going on here? Yeah. I had to clean up my language there for a brief second. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, seriously, I, I mean, what a horrible situation to be in! And you're uh, you were raised in a home where you were loved and cared for. You weren't a gangster. You weren't no. running around doing bad
2: things. No. You weren't selling drugs on the corner. Mm-hmm. You're a perfect guy. You know, you're even gonna if you were doing all those things and you didn't do this crime, you shouldn't.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, even right. if you were a drug dealer, right. it's like
2: you weren't. But yeah. I have a question. You talked about you became part of the system and you you really mirrored the negativity. Mm-hmm. How did you get out of that?
0: Yeah. You know, one day I was I, I believe we were probably on lockdown or in, I was in my cell and I remember laying on my bunk and as I was laying there this sunlight this the light just began to peer through our window and I was literally taken by it. And I was looking at this window. I jumped off my bunk. I went over to the small little slit in the window or in the wall and I'm looking out this window and I had this epiphany for the first time ever in probably two to two and a half years of my incarceration. I am not in control over the things that I'm fighting for control over. This entire time that I've been incarcerated, I've been trying to, to, to be in control of my freedom where when I'm, I'm not in a position to have control over it the negative emotions that i have the energy that i have towards the people that i feel are responsible they they don't know how i how i feel they probably don't care how i feel so this negative energy is is simply mine it's for me i'd realized that this you know experiences don't come with emotion we give emotion to experiences and the emotion that i was given to this experience was furthering the destruction of my life i began doing the job for the people who had put me behind bars and i and i could not allow myself to continue to do that. And so I said, you know, I may be somewhere I shouldn't be. I may be somewhere I don't want to be. But One thing that I can control is I'm not going to help them be, you know, part of my, I'm not going to be part of my own destruction. Wow. I'm going to do everything that I can to distance myself from the labels, the accusations, the the environment that I'm in. Um, I want it more okay. for me than anybody else could want from me. And I just, I was done being angry. I was done being mad wow. and depressed.
1: And what do you think made that epiphany happen?
0: You know what? I, I honestly always pay tribute to my mentor, Mr. Johnson, uh, who is uh, played by Morgan Freeman in this, in this movie. Um, I met him two weeks into my incarceration. I had lost 14 pounds in two weeks. I wasn't eating. I was. They kept telling me everything going to be okay. You know, they just got to figure it out. So I just sat in my cell. I didn't eat the food. I didn't come out. I didn't talk to anybody. I sat there and kind of wilted away, just waiting for the door to open up and them to say, "All right, we figured it out. Come on out of here." Yeah. But
2: that makes sense for a kid of your age. You're yeah. you're at an age where you don't understand how yeah, things. Yeah, you don't are, just go to things... jail and
0: adapt and right. just, you know, start hanging out and eating the food and. Right. You know, I was scared to death. You know, right. and so I just sat and waited. And time passed. Time passed. I started getting sick. So, anyways, they there's this teacher at the juvenile hall that that they know if there was somebody that could get to a kid. It would be him. So they send this older gentleman into my cell. He comes in and he sits next to me and he sizes me up and down. And the first words he says is, young man, I don't know what you're going through, but you got to let it go. And I and I just could not understand what he meant by letting go of something that I was currently in the, in the middle of. But there was also a part of me that understood what he meant by letting it go. There was something that I was holding on to that was destroying me. The way that I was holding on to it was destroying me. And so, in some ways, I had to let go of the 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 way that I was the way that I was going about uh, dealing with the things that were occurring in my life. And so, Mr. Johnson, who was a teacher there, I start going to his class to this day. I, I cannot tell you what subject he taught <laughs> because when you would go into his, his room, the only thing he would focus on is that journey towards enlightenment, uh, discovering the the real you, stepping outside of the box, challenging me in ways that I had never been challenged before. Um, I remember the first question he ever asked me in class was, who are you? And I was like, I'm Brian Banks. And he's like, well, that's your name. I'm asking you, who are you? I was like, well, I'm a young black man in prison for something that he didn't do. And he's like, well, that's your current state on this earth, and and that's the color of your earth suit. But neither are who you are. So let me ask you again, who are you? And I was silenced. I had no word. I didn't know. (laughs) And he's like, good, let's start there.
2: Were you curious about who you were in those moments? I
0: didn't know that I was until then. I didn't know that I was that I was I was so fascinated about me, about life, uh, the meaning and purpose of life, because I don't think that 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 conversation or the idea of thinking that way was ever presented to me or shown to me. You know, I've always you know, which we are at a young age. You always live on the surface of things, you never really go into the depth of who you are, or what life is about. We focus on, you know, the tangible things, the monetary things. So, um you know, I it's not until you're taken away from everything that you you realize what you truly have, you know. And that's what's that's what's in what's in was you. Was
1: he an employee of the prison, or was yeah, he an inmate?
0: He was a juvenile. He was a teacher he with the teacher. Uh, with the school. This, so he this, came
1: in one every day.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he designated his life thirty plus years. To working inside the juvenile halls to help kids and to try to reach kids before they made that next jump from juvenile hall to prison. You know, most people in prison will tell you they've spent time in jail as a juvenile, too. And it's that turnover rate. So that's his life. His life was just working with kids who had nobody else to to talk to. Do you know him now? That's one of my best.
1: <laughs> you did. Yeah. yeah,
0: he was at the uh, the the movie premiere in he Long was. Beach just a couple of days ago. Was what he new?
1: pleased with the casting of Morgan Freeman? Yes, he gave <laughs> us the, the
0: little wisdom. You know, the 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 wise nod. But I can tell he was extremely oh, happy. Man. At Morgan, he's Freeman.
1: one of my favorite actors of all time. I mean, I not not to get off subject, but I've seen the Shawshank Redemption at least twenty yes, times. <laughs> yes, a powerful. You know, film. it's a powerful film. It is. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Wow, what an interesting thing that you were there at that moment in time, and he crossed your path. Yeah. I believe that these things have another, you know, universe that they live in. It's very serendipitous that mm-hmm. you were there, and that he was there to help you, but mm-hmm. also that you were there to receive his help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you were yeah. open to receiving his help.
0: Yeah, I, I talk a lot about about um, mentorship uh, to young men. Especially our, you know, our NFL players and you know football players, because there's this, you know, create there's this notion or this perception that you know football players are tough and they can handle everything that they get coming at them, and and it's often the tough ones that we have to check on, you know, because we the tough ones are often handling and dealing with other people's problems yeah. because no one's never really checking up on them. Uh, so yeah, I, Mr. Johnson helped changed the course and the path of my life and he showed me that it was okay to be vulnerable, that it was okay to accept help, that it was okay to to talk to somebody, to relieve some of the things that are in your life, in your mind, in your heart. It's okay to talk to somebody to help you deal with those things Uh, and he really helped me clear space for being able to deal with other things that were happening in my life.
1: Why do you think that at that time you were open to listening to him. I mean, you were angry. You were an eighteen, eighteen. I yeah, think at this point, in time. I was
0: seventeen at that time that I met him because I needed. I, I, you know, I was, I was dying. I needed somebody. I needed a different way to see what was happening in my life.
2: And you had that moment with the sunlight. Mm-hmm. It connected on a deep, yeah. Because a I was on such level.
0: a, I was on such an emotional roller coaster. I was on such a, an eventful roller coaster of. You're, you're playing football, you're locked up, you're in adult court, but then here's some good news, but then here's some bad news. So it's just up and down and up and down. Uh, and it really will take a toll on your mental and your psyche. Uh, and, and so I think just being shown a different way. Uh, what Mr. Johnson showed me was that I could not, I had the choice on how I responded to the things that were going on in my life. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice into what was happening. I couldn't go in the courtroom and say, all right, everybody, this is enough. I'm going home. I didn't do it. I'm done. Like, you don't have that choice. But I had a choice in how I was feeling about those things, what I was doing as a response to those things. And how I felt about myself and and I think that's what
1: what a mature unbelievable point of view to take because you were a kid
0: yeah but no. I, you, you know what when you're in prison and, and, and you're in that box and you've got nothing but hours and hours and hours of time you will either continuously find ways to distract yourself whether it be through drugs or violence or just you know making you know just seeking attention or you finally be still and you listen and you allow that source, that energy to come into your life and point you in that direction of clarity.
2: The next sort of beat in the story is about the whole time you were there, you were trying to figure out how do I get out of here? Mm-hmm. And you discovered a person who was helping people like yourself. Mm-hmm. How did you discover them? What? Yeah. What? Can you tell that part of the story? Yeah, the
0: California Innocence Project, th- their name actually buzzes around prison like they're like the saviors. You know, everyone knows that they are the group that you go to if you felt like you got, you know, uh, uh, railroaded and that you're in there for something that you didn't do. You wouldn't reach out to an innocence project.
1: I saw Barry Sheck speak. He came to my... As you know, I got to recognize who he was during the O.J. trial. Yeah, yeah. And um, then I saw the work that he was doing with the Innocence Project, mm-hmm. and I have supported the Innocence Project for a long time because I really believe that people get caught up in the system. Yeah. And the system is so prone to trying to clear it, clear it, clear it, clear it. Gets to the next one, clear, mm-hmm. it, clear it, clear it, clear it. And if you don't have money, you don't have good lawyers. Mm-hmm. If you don't have good lawyers. Then you you have what happened to you where you have a woman that gives you some kind of bullshit and says, oh, you need to make a decision right this minute. Mm -hmm. And then the outcome of that, we all know the outcome of that was not the right outcome. But that work that 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 Innocence Project does is unbelievably effective and I don't know how many people they've helped but I
2: know that it's – a lot. Yeah. So your lawyer was Justin Brooks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, the first discovery was California Innocence Project and then yeah. Justin. Yeah, so
0: he's – Justin is a co-founder of the California Innocence Project. So when I first heard about them, I started uh, – I, I initially wrote them a letter asking them for help. They denied uh, my request for help because in order to help me,
1: you the see. witness
0: in my case needed to recant their story. The only witness was the person who made up the accusation. The DNA couldn't be used, even though it had—the DNA to this day has never been used in this in this case. And it should have, obviously. It's the first piece of evidence that should have went forward. But it could not be used in the appeal because it wasn't newly discovered evidence. It existed. It just hadn't been used. You need newly discovered evidence in order to get your appeal back into court. So they denied me. I finished my prison sentence, and I paroled August ninth, 2007. And I reached out to them again once I got home and they denied me again. Uh, And it wasn't until this recantation and having this proof that it didn't happen that they finally accepted my case.
2: How did that recant happen? Yeah,
0: so this is, I had paroled. I was 22. I was incarcerated from 16 to 22. Paroled then and then was placed on strict custody parole. I had to live you know, I can live within 2,000 feet of any school or park. I had to register as a sex offender. I was on all the websites. So, if you wanted to move in my neighborhood and make sure it was safe, you'd see this face. You'd see the case and the charge, and, and you'd see my address. You'd know exactly where I lived. So, I was vilified once I got home. But um, so, once I was home, I had been home, I think, four years of the five year sentence of parole. And I was looking for a job online, bored. Got off of that, decided to get on Facebook and just, you know, stalk some of my friends as we always do, always (laughs) do. And I noticed I had a friend request. I click on that box and it drops down. And there was the woman who had said that I took advantage of her nine years ago, uh, now requesting to be friends on Facebook. Oh, cow. Yeah,
2: I... uh, That must have made your blood run a little bit cold.
0: I was in disbelief. I just didn't think it was her. I I thought that somebody was playing some sick joke and just making up a fake account. I responded to the... I didn't accept the request, but I responded to the page saying, you know, call me. I wanted to see if it was really her. And it was. And, uh, you know, she was uh, very flirty over the phone. Um, Was very adamant about wanting to hang out.
1: Yeah. But she knew what happened, right?
0: Oh, yeah. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, like, sued, she didn't just, Well, like, they sued the school district for lack of security on right. campus. She was awarded $1.5 million in a settlement with the school district. Uh, you know, she was very much aware of what had happened to me and the entire process of court and everything. So here we were on this phone, and I'm trying to process what I'm hearing. I couldn't believe it. And then I also started thinking, let me play chess and not checkers. Here's an opportunity to, you know, finally get wow. the truth
2: get some new evidence yeah
0: It was gonna take some sacrificing some some risking because i wasn't supposed to be in contact with the victim
1: yeah in my case what a victim she was yeah i'm thinking um, you're the victim
0: yeah yeah so so
1: you, so you made you thought did you talk to your mom before you made the decision to meet not her? right
0: away because i knew she would have <laughs> talked me right out of it she would have been like boy you <laughs> block everything you stay away do not Get involved, you know.
1: Were you living with your mom?
0: No, I was living with an ex at the time mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Uh, and um, so I remember dropping to my knees and praying to God right after I saw this. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but if it's, this is real, please help me play my cards right. And as soon as I said amen and stood up, I had this idea that I was going to have to come in to contact with this woman to make sure uh, or to see if she would admit that this didn't happen. So I told her, you know, if you want to hang out, maybe we could think about that. Let's talk first. If you want to come to my job during my break, my lunch break, you can come and hang out and we can talk then. It was really a private investigation firm. I had already set this situation up with an investigator that I was going to have her come and we would have the room.
1: Wait a uh, second. I don't want to skip over this yeah. important point right here. So you, she, you've, you see her on Facebook. She mm-hmm. says, let's hang out. Mm-hmm. You th- say, oh, let me think about it. Then did you hire a private investigator? Mm-hmm.
0: So after I said, let me think about it, about a week or so had passed.
1: You hadn't I'm, engaged the Innocent Project yet? No. 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 Okay.
0: I'm, I'm doing this all on my own at this point. She's pretty much constantly texting me over that week and a half, harassing me about wanting to hang out. I'm reaching out to an investigator setting up this this operation where we capture everything on audio and video. And then the day that we decided to meet, she showed up. Uh, she actually showed up two days in a row. And over the course of those two days, she recanted. She admitted that she lied about everything and that it never happened. And I finally got that on tape. And um,
1: How did you get her to do that?
0: You know, it, what it was was the first t- the first day she showed up, we just talked. I wanted her to understand what had happened to me and what her lies caused. And I didn't ask for anything. I didn't want her to recant. I didn't want her to say anything. She, you know, I just wanted her to listen. Uh, and it was in one ear and out the other. It was very pointless in doing that. She showed up the next day. Um, and that day I had the investigator show up. Well, he was there the first day. He was just in any other room and, mm-hmm. you know, monitoring through another screen. The second day he was there uh, and he actually conducted the interview between the two of us. Under the 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 notion of I'm just here to help and give you guys advice on what you should do to make this right, and so he was the one who asked her directly: Did he rape you? Did he kidnap you? And she said, No, of course not. If that happened, I wouldn't even be here. And uh, the video is pretty. You know that in, that it, that it, that event that day was uh, the, the video is online. If you go on YouTube and search it, you see for yourself. It's it's pretty disgusting. Wow,
1: I will do that today.
0: Um but so uh, she
1: recanted, you get it on tape. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she came, she already had more than one child. Three of them. And she was 25, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. Yeah. And And um, what would her mother think about you, her coming to see you?
0: I do not know. I don't know much about her family. Um, I know her mom was uh, in and out of prison, drugs, drugs. Um, you know, gang involvement stuff like that. So,
1: is she bright? Because you're so bright. Yeah, the fact—I mean, you know, yeah. seriously bright.
0: She in, in the movie she's actually played down.
1: Uh huh.
0: So they—they they actually did not portray her as. As she should have been portrayed, mm-hmm. they lightened it a bit. It uh-huh. was, yeah, and you look, you watch the video, you'll see the difference. So
1: then, so so now we have this on tape that she recants. Let's keep going with the story.
0: Yeah. So once she recanted, that's when I finally reached out to the California Innocence Project again. I played the tape for them, and they finally saw the evidence that they needed to be able to take this case. And once they took on my case uh, was when I realized I had a small window of opportunity to, that if I got my life back, that I could really do some great things. And so I came up with the idea that if I get my life back, then I'm going to try out for the NFL and recapture dreams that were taken away. So as they fought my case for a year, I was in a gym for a year training and preparations for— Combine. Well, I mean, there was no yeah. guarantee of anything. Yeah. I hadn't talked to anybody, no recruiters or coaches. It was just more like, I'm going to be prepared if it shows itself this opportunity.
2: Were you in good shape?
0: No. Not when <laughs> I first started. I was probably the worst shape I had ever been in my life.
2: And being in that kind of shape is quite something. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. it's real specific what you have to be in shape to do, right? Oh,
0: yeah. And these guys have missed a beat. They've been doing it since you know high school some something since... Pop Warner, you know, without no time off. So. And
1: you'd had a hard time finding a job because you had a it felony was almost, record. It was
0: basically, almost impossible to find work. And I was finding a little couple of days of work here and there throughout five
1: years. And how was your relationship with your mom and your brother and sister?
0: Good and tough. You know, your family will always be your family. they always love you. Um, but, you, you know, you leave for five years, people learn to live without you. And not in a negative way. It's just kind of, you know, it's an unfortunate way. We don't have you. You're not here. We want you here, but you're not. So we got to kind of figure out a way to keep pushing forward. And so you grow in one space. They grow in another space. And neither one of you had an opportunity to see each other's growth.
1: Did your mom come visit you a lot? All the time. And your brother? brother My brother
0: came twice out of the whole experience. It was just too hard for him. He couldn't. He just couldn't see me in prison. Right. Yeah, way.
2: the contrast of who you who you were, quote-unquote, before mm-hmm. and who you were after had to have been devastating for him because he was, what, 14, 15? Yeah,
0: and we, yeah. I come home, I'm grown, he's grown. I've got this, you know, prison background. I've spent the fundamental stages of adulthood in a cage, and he's been running the streets, you know, and kind of being his own man without a, you know, no father figure, really. You know, our, our stepdad had passed away in 99 to lung cancer. So my mom had to deal with that too. And then 2002, just happened to me. Mm -hmm. So not really having a father figure or an older brother. He's kind of running the streets and, you know, he dropped out of school because he didn't want to go back to school with this girl and her sister and have to deal with all the people asking all these questions. Uh, So it was really hard for him. Um, Wow. Yeah.
1: It's hard on everybody. Yeah. So now you get this girl to recant. You go back to the Innocence Project.
0: Yeah. So they finally take on my case and they begin fighting it she goes into hiding once she realizes that she's been on tape recanting she then says that the tape the tape was altered and edited then said that i bribed her with $20,000 which i didn't have a penny to my name right you know um but to think i think sorry she think she said 10,000 uh but to think that you would lie about the worst moment of your life for just $10,000, I would say that it wouldn't, I'll would say that it didn't happen. You know, I just can't believe that anybody who really experienced something that traumatic would lie and say that it didn't happen for something monetary. But yeah, th- this whole fight began of back and forth of trying to track her down and, uh, you know, getting all the different compartments and people and and things that were uh, involved in this case and now be on board with this overturning of it and uh, we were lucky enough to have the, investi- the D.A. Uh, join in on a joint investigation, which rarely happens, to get down to the bottom of things. You tell,
1: let's talk about that because that's a fantastic story how you got that to happen.
0: Yeah. So I was uh, sitting at home, hanging out, and I got a phone call from Justin Brooks saying put on a nice shirt and tie and get down here to the L.A. court office. I, I got the lead D.A. here for L.A., and then he's willing to sit with you in an interview never happens you know most people are incarcerated and no da is going to travel to a prison to sit and talk with an inmate i was out so i was in a position where i could come to you and meet you and so he was open enough to do that his name was brent frere he's no longer the lead da now he actually works for uh he i think he works for, and works with the the northern california innocence project it was pretty cool to mm-hmm. he transition no kidding over. yeah wow um uh sorry Loyola in Los Angeles the Loyola Innocence Project after that meeting with him he, he uh he wanted to join in on the investigation which was which was also very rare that they would you know do that and uh together investigators from CIP and investigators from the district attorney's office started working on this case and uh finally have tracked this girl down and subpoenaed her to court and once she made it to court they interviewed her in a room with the CIP lawyers and the district attorney and the district attorney's uh, investigator. And by the end of that interview, they realized that she had made everything up, that it was a complete lie. And now they had to go through all the motions of making everything right and making sure they notified everybody that they were going to overturn this case and just to be prepared for any lawsuits and this and this and that. Yeah. And then May 24th, 2012, I walk into a courtroom, uh, uh, and I was given my life back. You they, were exonerated. They not only did they con- not only did they concede to the matter. They also deemed me factually innocent, which is the difference between not guilty or just innocent. Not guilty or innocent means like we don't have enough to come get your ass, mm-hmm. so we gotta let you go. Yeah, yeah. Factually innocent is like we messed up.
1: Wow,
0: my bad. Like we really messed up. We agreed that you didn't do anything.
1: So she had gotten a settlement from the school. What happened to that money?
0: They countersued her. The school district and the court countersued her for two point six. And they won, but she doesn't have a dollar to their name to her name, so they they won't get anything.
1: So it's a hollow victory, but nevertheless, she has that hanging out over her. Yeah,
0: there's there's also a statute of limitation of eight years. That after eight years, it's impossible in the state of California to go after somebody for perjury.
2: Did she ever apologize to you?
0: No, no.
2: She no. sounds like she's not completely right in her mind.
0: That would be a good assessment. Yeah, yeah fair. Yeah, fair to say. I, mean, I think it's ironic when you think of the concept of that someone could say, hey, 30 years ago, you committed a crime against me that I'm just now ready to come forward and talk about, and I'm going to pursue you for that thing you did to me 30 years ago. And that's legal, but it's impossible to go after somebody who lied on you and took 30 years of your life. After eight years, you can't come after that person. So I think it's pretty crazy that someone can bring up something that happened 30 years ago, but then someone's protected from taking 30 years of your Mm -hmm. life.
1: So, Um, now let's talk about the fact that you're out of jail. mm -hmm. You've gotten this overturned. You don't have a felony conviction anymore. Yeah. You have, you know, as much of your life back as you can. You have a mentor. Mm -hmm. And now you're working out to
2: get fit enough to go play football. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge you for telling us this story.
0: Yeah. You're welcome.
2: Because it can't be easy to tell it over and over again.
0: It's tough. But I know how necessary it is. Like, I know that this is, when I'm talking about my story, I'm talking about the story of so many other people. Mm -hmm. And it may not be a sexual assault case. It may not be a kidnapping case. It may be another type of crime. But the fact that somebody was rushed to judgment, was rushed to being prosecuted, was never given a fair shake or a fair deal in court you know I, there's too many of us
2: so that's what fuels the energy that goes behind telling I'm, it i've over been and over.
0: i've been helpless i've been silenced i've begged for the help and i know what it feels like to rot in a cage and be so helpless and 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 your your cries fall on deaf ears like i know what that feels like so like i have to it would behoove me to to get out to get the help that I finally needed and then not turn around and help people in similar situations.
1: Well, the, the lessons that you have and the, you know, that I got from the book and the, the things that you're able to say it forward now mm-hmm. are unbelievable. Yeah. And the fact that your mom never left your side for one second, yeah. you know, completely believed you. We, you're a believable guy, yeah. you know, and um, an unbelievable thing to happen to a family. It's a horrible you know, I story. About,
0: I say that all the time. It's not just the person behind bars that a wrongful conviction affects. It's the family. It's that person. It's the community. It it, it changed so much for so many people. And it's one of those things that you really don't know how you would deal with it until you're actually right. in
2: that situation. Yeah. And you it, as you tell this story, it strikes me, and I've never thought of this before. And shame on me, but there are no systems of support for the people, the family.
0: There really, isn't. there really is nothing there. You 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 build up for this big fight, this big court battle, you lose and you kind of just walk away with your tail between your legs and try to pick up some pieces that are left sitting around. And I, I watched my mom do that, you know, and just I, I always say I know what it feels like to be wrongfully convicted and sent to prison and being in a cell. I know what that feels like. I do not know what it feels like to be a mother, to have your kid ripped from your arms and you do all that you can to protect your child and nothing works
2: mm-hmm.
0: nothing works and you're crying you're begging you're screaming you've my mom sold her house she sold her car you know she did everything that she could literally and nothing worked and nothing happened yeah. and there was no evidence and so it just says a lot about our system and and that's, yeah, that's you know terrible. that's why we have to make these types of films and that's why this book has to be here and that's why I have to tell my story right. over and over and over again because, it, you know, we yeah. have to know.
1: So what, was that, what made that happen? Let's talk about how, that. So you you have the story. You're now yeah.
0: so 25,
1: I, 6 years old. You're yeah. trying out for football.
0: I, I tried out for the NFL. I tried out for five teams, signed with the Falcons, had an opportunity to play four games there, most exciting uh, time of my life, finally recapturing a, a, a stolen dream. And then shortly after that, I got hired to work for the NFL front office by the commissioner Roger Goodell. So I moved to New York for a year and a half and worked there, and did another like half a year over at uh, NFL Network in Culver City. And I'm a life coach now. I'm I'm a nationally recognized speaker. I travel all around talking, and uh, I just wrote this book, "What Set Me Free." I had a TV show for a small period of uh, for a season called uh, "Final Appeal" on Oxygen. Where I investigated cases of potential wrongful conviction, trying to pay it forward, uh, and now I'm in a space where I'm I'm still advocating by way of a film. I sit on the advisory board of the California Innocence Project, uh, the National Registry of Exonerations. So I'm I'm still in that same lane, just trying to 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 play my part and help the next person.
1: You know, Have you been and, able to help anybody?
0: Yeah, we've been successful at uh, I've been successful at being a part of two exonerations. Both, I was successful at getting over 100,000 signatures signed. We marched, we rallied in front of our attorney general's office. We, we, we uh, the California Innocence Project, uh, there was a project uh, program called the, the California 12, 12 cases that they had been working on where they had a shadow, they had beyond a shadow of a doubt proof. That these 12 individuals were innocent, but due to some form of a technicality within the court system, whether it be time is ran out or uh, the judge says that we've already been here. We don't want to see this again. They're denying the DNA testing for some reason. For some technical reason, they're still in there. And so what the California Innocence Project and Justin Brooks decided to do was to march from San Diego all the way to Sacramento in protesting of their release. And they did that twice. They've done it twice already, and I took part in some of those some of those cities and mm-hmm. marched with them. Uh, and uh, Are so
2: those marches still happening?
0: They, I'm pretty sure he's going to gear up for another one soon. So, so this you, you is, would
2: go to the California Innocence Project uh, website yeah, in order you, to participate? Yeah, you can go
0: them? to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org and not only can you find out about the California 12 you can find out about their other cases you can support them by purchasing the 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 sweatshirts and the bracelets and things that they have they're a nonprofit student law firm clinic they make money off of small grants from the the government and the rest is from the donations made by us yeah um so they're doing a the noble work that that people shy away from or don't want to face the reality that this happens they go out and and literally save Innocent lives, mm-hmm. innocent lives, people in cages. I try to tell people when you go home, clear out your closet, get in there for 24 hours, don't come out, let somebody bring you food, no TV, no music, no talking, and let's see if you can get through 24 hours. Now try a day. I mean, right. try a week. Mm-hmm. Try two weeks. Try a month. Right. Do a year.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: now do five of yeah. them yeah. You know, it's just like oh shit. yeah yeah you maybe know, in yeah. some
1: weird sort of way the fact that this happened to you and the fact that you're now doing what you're doing not only clearing the deck but to look at all the people whose lives you're helping now
0: yeah yeah you
1: know? so what do you do now besides so the, besides you, all I mean, that's of that a lot, stuff yeah. you, know, you don't get paid for any of that so you I do get paid, paid for, for the public speaking, speaking right. yeah
0: for the public speaking i you know I, that's my primary source of income. But what I'm doing now is you know, number one, being a dad, I have a six month old boy at home. Oh congrats. Yeah, thank you. So he's he's definitely it's keeping so me nice. busy. I have
1: a grandbaby, a little grandbaby. He's four weeks old. Four weeks. So cool. Yeah. <laughs>
0: tiny tiny my yeah. boy is big he's six months in a 99 percentile in height he's already crawling saying mama and baba
2: six months At six months At six
0: months oh my goodness oh. He's standing up pulling himself up and you have
2: bookshelves up and in yourself. your house you better take him down I know. he's gonna oh, be
0: climbing i need to put the books in his face so he's gonna be a little genius <laughs> i hope i bet he
2: will be
0: but yeah being a dad and then also uh just for me i am always looking for ways to be an advocate and to be of service for others um, what I hope for moving forward, you know, I would like to stay in contact with the NFL and continue to do life coach work with the players. Um, you know, I'd like to, to see some of these laws be changed and, and rearranged within our judicial system. Uh, kids being tried as adults. I think that this needs to come to an end. Uh, I think that, uh, our prosecutors should have some, uh, responsibility, uh, for the decisions and actions that they make if you send somebody to prison for something that they didn't do you should be held accountable for it there shouldn't be this uh protection law that keeps you safe
2: right it's a you malpractice
0: know. yeah i think it's un- i think it's unfortunate that you know the way a, a prosecutor advances in their career is by being tough on crime and having a high conviction rate not necessarily doing what's morally or eth- ethically correct mm-hmm. you know and so just to see somebody advance in life by destroying lives uh, is almost is pretty sick in a way to think about that. And so I think that if there was if there was a punishment or a penalty, then a lot of these wrongful convictions and these these rush to judgment, it it will cease. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to lose your job. Mm -hmm. Moreover, be sent to jail for sending somebody away.
2: It's behavioral economics. If there's no consequence. Yeah. I'm also the three strikes law. It, it, is,
0: ugh, it needs to be abolished. I met a man who got his oh third strike God. from stealing a slice of pizza.
1: It's unbelievable. he was
0: hungry. He got caught. And they gave him his third I strike.
1: Do, I'm, I'm <laughs> working on supporting the three strikes law, the repealing of the or the modification yeah. of the three strikes law. Yeah. I think that it's really important. I was I was approached by a couple of people. I'm fully committed to trying to help that. I don't know that it needs to be completely appealed. I don't know enough about it yet. But it definitely needs to be modified.
0: Absolutely. 100%. Mm-hmm.
1: See, people are in jail for pot. Mm-hmm. For Christ's sake, which is legal in yeah. most states yeah. in the country now. So let's talk about your film. So now the film. Let's talk about the history and how we get in the film opening, so we can yes. get everybody
2: to come in and see it because it's I, a wonderful can I stop film for a session. Because sure. I want am just one. sensitive I to it. Yeah, time, yeah I know, yeah. I know. And and you'll be able to talk <clears throat> about yeah. film. This is just a little coda to what we've been talking about, Brian. How do you how do you go about um, educating yourself about these complicated legal matters that you're advocating to mm-hmm. change?
0: I I try to stay informed uh, with current events. I think it's important that, you know, I know it's hard to watch the news with all of the tragic things that constantly are happening, but you have to kind of weed through uh, 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 a lot of those things to, to be informed about the other stuff that are, that's going on. So I'm constantly in current events, um, but also I'm involved directly with the Innocence Project as well as the National Registry of Exonerations. And so between those two different programs. I am always up to date and receiving information about what's going on in the space of wrongful conviction. So you're
2: doing deep reading on it constantly. Yeah, constant reading,
0: yeah. talking to other inmates, uh, I mean talking to other exonerees, learning their stories, learning their experiences uh, and 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 uh, you know I am now in that, I am now in that position where so many people reach out to me directly for help. -hmm. You know, and I'm not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. I can't legally give you advice, but I realize that I am now kind of a pillar of hope for some people. You know, sure, and and so they reach out for help.
2: That's a perfect transition to the film.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and that's why we're making this film. That's why I decided to make the film. I remember when this first started. It was uh, an idea that uh, I was approached by many different producers about wanting to make this into a film. It was from a sports idea to a prison idea. I felt like people had great ideas, but not the idea until so I met with this woman named Amy Bear of Getting Media, a mother of two boys, and she connected with the story. She, I felt like she understood the importance, the value in the story, and so I signed off with her, and the ball began rolling. She started putting all the pieces together with Tom Shadiak as our director and Shiv Hans Productions as our financier and our other production company. Bleeker Street is our distribution. We just have an amazing group of people that see the the importance of the story and and why it needs to be told.
2: Can you tell us the name of the film?
0: The film is called Brian Banks. It is directly named after me, which is pretty surreal. to have, <laughs> yeah, you no know. kidding. It could have right? been like the football player that <laughs> never gave up or something like that, but to have it just literally be Brian Banks is uh is uh is pretty surreal. But but. The, the the biggest discussion was with my mom and my family. Once all the offers were on the table, it was a discussion of, do we really want to do this? And there were reasons why we didn't. There were reasons why we did. And the reasons why we did far outweighed the reasons why we did not want to. We know what it feels like to be that family that is in dire need for help.
1: So I want to tell our listeners that I had the pleasure of seeing the film. Yes. And – there wasn't a dry eye in the room, mm. literally. We're all walking out, yeah. you know, trying not to cry. It was such a heartfelt, deeply you know, enriching mm-hmm. and sad story all at the same time. I mean, to have your life at that age, but you have overcome it. Yeah. And you are now paying it forward in ways that you're going to touch the lives of so many people. Yeah. I'm so yeah. grateful to have met you today and to know you. It's thank a wonderful,
2: wonderful story. Thank yeah. you, Brian. So. Thank you. Yeah, incredible. It's, and yeah. again, thank you for telling the story because I know it can't be easy. Well,
0: I, I want to thank you both for allowing me to tell my story on this platform. You know, it, it's a choice in what you choose to bring light to and give attention to. Just as I have a voice, you all have a voice and you have a following and people listen to what you put out there into the universe. And so I thank you for being a part of this yeah. journey and allowing me to continue to Spread that message. It means a lot to me. So thank you.
1: Thanks. Next time, we're excited to have a woman whose comedy career took off after appearing on The Tonight Show, The Howard Stern Show, and The Comedy Central Roast. Her career has spanned more than 30 years, but she became a household name when she raised money for the gay men's health crisis on Celebrity Apprentice. After many tours, Grammy nominations, and TV appearances, she made headlines in 2012 when she lost more than 100 pounds through bariatric surgery. This big change brought about her retirement from stand-up comedy, and after completing a difficult life coaching certification program, she's now dedicating her life to running life-changing food and body image workshops. So join us when we rewind to the beginning to find out how she went from insult comic to inspirational life coach on the next Say It Forward.
2: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward, Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.